Okay, so for our first official podcast episode, I decided today I would focus on one of the quote-unquote classical New England writers that we're focusing on for this week. And this week happens to be Amy Lowell. Uh, Some of you might have heard of her before, but I want my episode here to kind of recap her, um, why I picked her, why especially um, to have her highlighted in this class, and then just read to you and talk a little bit more about some of her works we're going to look at for this week. And so I'm flying solo on this episode, but hopefully uh, next week one of you might join me or someone else will join me um, and we can talk a little bit more about um, some of these other authors. So. I'm very excited. Um, I've taught Amy Lowell in some other American classes before. Um, and so you might have heard of her. But if you haven't, uh, primarily she's an American poet. And she's from this group of poets, which we call imagists. And they come out of a group called imagism. So I-M-A-G-I-S-M. Basically, it's this movement of poetry um, and sometimes art. That comes about in very much the early 20th century and what types of qualities it really uh, focuses on is the precision of imagery and a lot of clear, sharp language. Um, It sort of gave modernism its start in its early 20th century. And for those of you who've been studying literature, if you haven't been studying literature, modernism in literature, as opposed to, you know, we can talk about modernism in art too. It's um, very much focused on a very self-conscious break with traditional ways of writing. So much more experimental, um, much more different in prose and poetry. There's a lot of experimentation with the form and the structure, the expression, um, sort of like a conscious desire to not be traditional. And so some of the poets Um, that we're going to be looking at just in this class, certainly fall into that category. And Amy Lowell is one of them. So I'll definitely post a little bit more on that if you're interested in um, looking at that type. I know some of you have studied that before, or you might just have, you know, sort of a revelation that you like to study um, images. But why we're focusing on Amy Lowell, well, she was born in Boston, Massachusetts. So she is certainly a New England writer in her own part. And just to give you some brief background on her life and why we're choosing to study her, um, yes, she was born outside of Boston, Brookline, and she actually died in Brookline, Massachusetts. So um, she's certainly one that we want to focus on. Um, Both of sides of her family, so both her mother and her father's side, came from New England aristocracy, so they are very wealthy and prominent. Uh, Unlike some writers that we've read this semester, her father uh, was a businessman, civic leader, and also a horticulturalist, and her mom was a musician and a linguist. So you can see how sort of um, her early patterns for writing, and even in her family, Um, Poetry was a big part of her family because um, James Russell Lowell, who was a first cousin, was a poet. And later, the well-renowned writer Robert Lowell was also part of her family. So because she's coming from a really wealthy family, she's educated um, first at her family home. So she had uh, very properly an English governess. Um, She had written which I think is really funny, her first poem at age nine. Um, And 
It was called Chicago. However, there's sort of a story that goes around when her first poem was uh, written, she spelled Chicago C-H-A-C-A-G-O, not only because she was nine years old, but because she had an English governess, uh, spelling was not something that she actually learned during her at-home education. So because of that, in the later part of the 1800s, so it's around 1883, she actually gets sent to private schools in Brookline and Boston. Um, so I thought it was very interesting that, um, one of the sources on her, this could be a topic of discussion, said she was a terror of the faculty. And so you can probably think what type of student she was here. Um, so very interestingly enough, she was very much indifferent to like classroom etiquette. They said she was noisy and opinionated and spoiled and she terrorized the other students and spoke back to her teachers. So um, nothing like anyone that I've ever encountered, hopefully in the class. She traveled a lot with her family, of course, to Europe and even out west, which is um, really interesting for this time to New Mexico and California, which are so new. And she kept a lot of travel journals. Um, so I think that's really interesting to kind of note. We talked a lot about, especially with Mace Sarton. Uh, in our previous week, the importance of journals and uh, her importance of journals, too, is she kept uh, many of these, especially in her travels along the way. Um, when she was in school, though, like the typical classes, English, history, French, literature, um, some Italian, that type of thing. Um, so um, very much when she finished her formal schooling, she actually considered um, a couple different options. Uh she actually needed to keep educating herself because higher education was not an option for the women in her family. So she said she put herself through a really rigorous reading program uh, because her father was so wealthy and just so inclined to knowledge in general. She, he had over a 7,000 volume library and her great grandfather was one of the founders of the Boston Athenaeum, which is um, sort of like one of the first private libraries in Boston. We have one here in Philadelphia, too, that's modeled after that. Later, um, very much she would speak out against when the Athenaeum in Boston was supposed to be relocated. Uh, she was a big adversary against this and became the subject of a poem for her in the future. But her love of books began, uh, she said, when she was six years old. So this has sort of been ingrained in her. Um, in 1891, she reportedly made her first major purchase of a set of the complete works of Sir Walter Scott with money that she got as a Christmas gift. So I thought that was pretty interesting um, to kind of see. But she very much led the life of a prominent socialite because she visited, she went to parties, she went to the theater, she traveled. Um, her mother passed away in 1895. She hadn't really been out of the house in quite so many years after that. So um, very much, um, you know, that had, I think, a lot to do with her um, other feelings kind of on that, too. Um, she actually went to Egypt, which is very cool, in 1897 and 1898, reportedly after a disappointment in love. Um, I'll talk about some of her uh, sort of personal interests later on. She had accepted a proposal from a Bostonian whom she said she loved, but before the engagement was announced, apparently he, uh, something tied him up elsewhere. And so um, her family said also that the trip was for health reasons, um, which was not totally untrue because a lot of doctors felt that her obesity could be cured 
buy an Egyptian diet of what seems to me kind of crazy to even think of that, and the Egyptian heat. So those were the remedies in the time, but they actually almost killed her and resulted in a very much nervous collapse, nervous breakdown for her because her father died in 1900. Um, so that was, that was a lot for her. She actually bought a summer home in New Hampshire in Dublin, New Hampshire. Um, and she named it Broomley Lacey. And the area, um, later on was home to different artist colonies, which is pretty cool over the years too. Um, but when she did go back home, it is important to note, she took over a lot of her father's civic responsibilities. Um, she very much was involved in, politics. She spoke against the reimportment of a superintendent in the public school system. She was the first woman in the Lowell family to make a speech in public, um, which I think was really interesting. And she was met on sort of both sides with that. But it was truly in the early 1900s when she became a poet. Um, her interest had just been growing since she was a kid. And so, um, you know, very much so she took it upon herself to um, to keep writing. In 1910, four of her sonnets were accepted in the Atlantic Monthly. So a fixed idea appeared uh, first in August of that year. And then by the end of 1912, she actually published her first book of poetry, which is pretty cool. Um, so I think that's really neat on there. And the name of that was called A Dome of Many Colored Glass. That came from Percy Bly Shelley's Adonis, his elegy for Keats. Um, nobody liked it, unfortunately. How sad is that, right? Like, gosh, no one in the public liked it. And then on top of that, the critics hated it. She really couldn't win from either side like that, too. So um, pretty sad. 1912 was the year she met actress Ada Dwyer Russell. And... This is where um, some of the, I don't want to call it controversy, but some of the ramblings and sort of discussion about um, Lowell's sexuality sort of comes into play. So what was described first as a, a platonic friendship by some people was categorized as a lesbian relationship by others. Uh, but in fact, what many said was a Boston marriage. So going back off some of the other writers, they lived together and they were committed to each other until Amy Lowell passed away. and. Russell was her companion with love and emotional support and also just helped with Amy Lowell's really busy life too. helped her get everything organized and present. Um, so you can certainly go back and I think that would make something interesting. The idea of these Boston marriages too is so interesting to kind of look at um, in terms of relationships in these earlier part of these women's lives. Uh, the following year, so this is around 1913, uh, Amy Lowell discovers poems and poetry uh, the publication by Hilda Doolittle, uh, which is HD, whom some of you have read before. Um, and they're signed HD and Majesty. And that's when um, sort of what I briefly mentioned earlier on, that this type of poetry, this images style, Amy Lowell was totally into it. She identified with it. She was so intent upon discovering more about it. She was armed with a letter of introduction from the poetry editor. She traveled to London to meet Ezra Pound. Uh, some of you will remember him. He was the head of the whole movement. He was sometimes not in his right mind over there. But in London, she was so excited because not only did she learn more about this movement, but she became so enthralled with the scene of poetry and, and particularly with the poets in this style. They became her lifelong friends. And um, for someone who didn't have a lot of family living after this, it was so important to her to have these literary friendships. And that um, that gave her so much correspondence. Um, 
so much that I, I read this and I, I couldn't believe it when I was reading a biography of her that she had two full-time secretaries at the time because she couldn't keep up with all the correspondence and the whole of her engagement. Um, but not only that, she was really big on supporting and encouraging other poets with her writing. So I think that's almost um, just as important as the relationships that she's built too. So um, along with those, her poems get published in journals and also she's writing essays and reviews. Um, so I think that's really interesting. She has different volumes written in free verse and um, some other different types of writing styles to which we'll get into. And basically she starts publishing almost a book a year. Uh, I don't know. I don't know about all of you, but after listening to some of the accomplishments and accolades of these uh, women writers over the past couple of weeks, man, I feel a little lazy. <laughs> I think I feel a little lazy too going through uh, some of these works. So she's publishing a book a year. Now, keep in mind, these are going from some are short volumes, some are longer volumes, um, but it doesn't matter. That's still a lot. Um, one of her most highly regarded pieces came in 1916. It's called Men, Women, and Ghosts, and it contained patterns, which is one of her most famous poems. Um, and I'm going to read that one later on. We're actually going to read that one in class together. Um, it's in that poem where you have an 18th century woman walking in her garden and she sort of contemplates a future that's kind of become empty and lost because of her fiance who dies in battle. Um, so it's very, really, uh, an interesting piece here. She writes some longer poems. She has different translations of poems. And even in 1922, she publishes uh, a critical fable, which is a very long, humorous poem, um, much more sort of contemporary. Uh, her last publication was a biography of John Keats. Yes, she was at Yale giving an address honoring him on the 100th anniversary of his birth. And that sort of inspired her to write a whole book on John Keats. Um, and so uh, she uh, very much um, examined Keats' life and a lot of sort of misconceptions and rumors about him. Um, she was also the first biographer to see the character of Fanny Braun in a favorable light. So the book was so well received in the U.S., uh, but not necessarily in Britain because they accused her of writing a psychological thriller and not a literary biography. She was heartbroken over it. Um, and she really wanted to show them that she was correct. She planned to travel to England, but unfortunately, she never was able to make that journey, and she died of a cerebral hemorrhage um, in that year, which is very sad. Her life was cut short. So many of her works were also published uh, posthumous after her. Um, her partner, Ada Dwyer Russell, um, published uh, several pieces of her poetry, one collection called What's O'Clock, that actually won the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry in 1925. And what I feel, and I hope some of you might agree with me on this too, and maybe a topic that a lot of you really want to explore, is that um, a lot of her poetry was not sufficiently recognized during her lifetime. Um, she wrote more than 650 poems, which is a lot. And even more so now, she's acknowledged as the sort of the first American poet to become part of this tradition. Um very innovative. And a lot of her lectures and ideas on this idea of a new poetry of imagism and free verse, you know, um, was so persuasive that so many people keep reading her today. And primarily, a lot of her correspondence, her papers, her manuscripts are in the Houghton Library at Harvard. 
her collection of rare books and manuscripts is at Harvard. Um, and some are also scattered um, around a little bit more too. There's uh, Brown has some pieces. University of Virginia has some of her papers. Um, I'm actually very excited. I'm going to be able to go to Chicago uh, earlier in um, the spring semester. And all of her letters to Harriet Monroe are at the University of Chicago. So I'm really looking forward to hoping that I can get to read some of her correspondence too in that type of way. Um, it's also very sad to think about how and this is some uh, topic I'm, I'm constantly going back to, how some of the legacy of these women writers has just been so lost during certain time periods in our country. So pretty much in post-World War I, no one talked about Amy Lowell. But the women's movement in the 70s and so many different women's studies courses, kind of like what we were talking about uh, in the previous week with Mae Sarton, brought her back into the light. Um, so it's very interesting to see um, how some of these women just, you know, come and go. Um, a lot of other people are really interested in Amy Lowell because of the anti-war sentiment of, of her poems, um, her personification of, of objects in poetry, and of course, the, the themes, lesbian themes of love and friendship and, um, and sort of um, female relationships that we're going to be looking at in other parts of her poetry. So I'm I'm very excited to share her work. Um, I I really think you know she died at only 51 years old. Um, you know, had she lived a bit longer, or had she uh, had she maybe taken a little better care of her health, you know, if possible, along some of these years. I don't know. It's hard to think about what could have been, what might have been, but. There's some uh, really great pieces out there that I'm so glad that we can share and read together. So as I've been recording this, you know, I didn't mean it to sound like a, a lecture. Um, next week, I'm hopefully I'll have some guests on to talk about some of these works that we'll be going through and you all will be going through and highlighting some of the topics and recordings that you want to look at as well. Um, I'm just really excited to share and some of these authors with you as we go through the second part of our class because we're almost at the midway point of the semester. And um, I'm just really excited to keep reading and keep forming patterns and ideas. Um, and I'm hoping that this podcast and then eventually putting our episodes up on a blog will be a way to preserve the legacy um, and keep the conversation just going on many of these women. So um, check back for some more recordings and I look forward to hearing some of yours. Hi everyone, so welcome. This is going to be our Literary Pioneers podcast and I'm going to get us start this week with uh, two episodes. Uh, brief episodes, just to sort of set the tone. Um, my hopes and sort of goals for this assignment is to A, make some of the material that we're learning just much more interactive, uh, make it much more conversational, and also give an opportunity where you all can collaborate with each other on a space to talk about just some of the really unique writers and different texts that we've been reading this semester. So I think it's a little bit um, out of the comfort zone maybe for some people, uh, especially if you're not used to sort of recording yourself. Um, if you know or you listen to podcasts, um, I've been a frequent podcast listener, probably most especially over the past five years as I've commuted more. I really appreciate it, not only listening to music, but taking myself out of listening to only music and listening to these 
various recordings that I can, whether it's um, while I'm driving, while I'm walking, while I'm on public transportation. And I love the idea of podcasts in general. Um, A lot of people don't know how long podcasts have actually been around for, and they've been around for quite some time. But literally, a podcast is any audio broadcast. It's been converted to um, what's typically like an MP3 file or another audio format, and you get to play it back in sort of however digital fashion you want. Um, the most popular way to kind of subscribe and use your podcast, uh, most people have an iPhone or an Android, and through the apps on there, you can subscribe so that you regularly get updated content. Um, we'll go through. There's some really awesome podcasts that you can listen to based on your own interests, based on your own sort of um, you know, um, preferences too. But although many podcasts can also be played in a regular computer, you could be sitting there at your desk working headphones in at the library. It doesn't matter. You can play a podcast through your computer. The original idea was to listen on a portable device, hence the pod name actually came from the iPod. Oh my goodness, if you remember the iPods, which I think were bigger than some phones that they even have now, the original ones like that. And even though most podcasts are probably traditionally verbal in that sense, you can have a lot of podcasts that, of course, contain music. Um, you can have ones that have images and video that go along with the audio content. So it's this podcast really kind of stemmed out of that Um different type of broadcasting situation. Now, when you're looking at different broadcast types, um, there's a lot that you can kind of dive into. Um, You have podcasts that kind of survey sort of public service announcements or just sort of um, up-to-date kind of quick information. I should say there's no limit on time for podcasts. So I know for some different uh, podcasts that I subscribe to, Uh, It depends on the frequency of when each podcast comes out. Some podcasts comes out once a week. Some come out every other week. Some are every two or three weeks. Um, It depends on the host and who's producing the content. Sometimes podcasts can come out twice a week, three times a week. um, And that's just, again, varying on what it is that you're listening to. Some podcasts will only be maybe 10 minutes long. I know some that I subscribe to can be an hour and 20 minutes long. Um, I was also listening recently to, I finished up a history podcast that I was looking at, and it was on sort of um, uh, the fall of Rome. And it was divided up into so many episodes that it spanned over a seven-hour time period. So again, they can be as short or as long as you want. For our podcast here, we're going to concentrate on working our way up to longer pieces, um, especially when you're collaborating with your peers. You'll notice that you just generally kind of want more time to um, to kind of work together. So podcasts can come with that public service announcement. They can be these new stories. They can be pieces of interest. Think sort of like This American Life or Radio Lab or, um, you know, uh, any of those pieces that you kind of hear about. They can certainly be oral history retellings. There are so many different podcasts that span and tell um, so many different stories within the realm of history in all different contexts. Um, Podcasts can also come, what's a really cool format we'll be experimenting with is the interview format, which I really love, where uh, sometimes you're sitting in groups or one-on-one or 
one person's interviewing two people, vice versa, whatever it might be. And you have that style of what would be a face-to-face interview that's translated over um, the audio broadcast. And then, of course, you also have podcasts that can be in the realm of poetry or writing and theater and the arts where perhaps a a different performance piece um, is performed audibly for you through that podcast. So maybe it's the reading of a poem, it's the reading of a play, theatrics of that, um, or other types of art pieces. Um, those are just some of the, the different ways. You have so many podcasts in the areas of sports, uh, different retellings, reportings back, um, interviews in that kind of sense. Music most definitely is a big area. Business has a huge subscribing. Um, anything and everything pretty much has an area of its podcast now. And the biggest part of the best practices you can think about when you're dealing with these podcasts is that um, you really want to lead your reader in with a, you know, your listener, just as you would lead your reader in a paper, you want to lead them in with a hook. So some sort of catchy question or some type of story to get you started or something that you found interesting. It's a big uh, task of drawing the audience in um, because you want them to stick with you for the whole episode, just very much translated over to paper writing. You also want to personalize with the audience. So you want to make sure that, you know, yes, this podcast is for everyone in our class, but should you choose to and want to share it with other people, which we definitely will set up on a blog so that other people can see what we've been doing. Uh, you want to make it conversationable. You want to make it tailored to your interests, but also to the interests of um, those who maybe might be listening. It's such a good practice in public speaking. And for a lot of you, I know you might not love public speaking, but that's okay. Um, it's a great practice in, in practicing public speaking without physically being in front of someone. So if you don't like that part and you want to take away some of that fear, this is a great practice, especially with, you know, practicing something out loud. Um, It helps you really evaluate your tone and your emotions that come through uh, when you're looking to um, kind of portray and tell a story or give information out in your podcast that way. Um, It's a great way to, to become more personal than you can actually get in a paper or something that you can get only in a piece of writing like that. Um, So it's a really fun, uh, it's definitely a a fun genre that you can certainly get into. Um, Now, when you're looking through your pieces on here, and you're figuring out maybe what you want to talk about for the podcast, yes, it's going to be um, related to our course content, but also you want to make it so it's tailored to sort of your own storytelling approach. And you all write very differently. Um, and so I should expect that you'll all sort of re- report back kind of differently. And, um, you know, sort of uh, very much kind of put your own personal spin on your podcast. Um, you might notice that some of you have subscribed to even podcast novels or like very much podcast uh, audiobooks too in the past. Or um, a lot of mystery podcasts are kind of very popular these days. Um, especially given around Halloween and, and sort of, um, you know, kind of what's been coming off after that too. Um, so I'll make sure to link to um, a lot of different podcasts that you yourself can listen to and ones that might be a little bit, you know, I think if you're looking, they iTunes uh, lets you rate and review your different podcasts and they give sort of um, uh, sort of rankings every week. I know Serial remains one of the top podcasts along with This American Life and certain uh, crime shows and Pod Save America has been one of my favorite over the years. 
along with, I love this one podcast called Stuff You Should Have Learned in History Class and sort of all random tidbits and retellings of things that you never would even sort of think about. I love The Moth for traditional storytelling. Lore is one of my favorite sort of society and culture mystery type of um, podcasts. Uh, you might like, uh, if you're someone who's into things, How I Built This is a great uh, podcast to look at. If you're into news, I would say subscribe to any of the news ones to keep up to date. For sports, there's some really great ones um, that you can kind of uh, chime into a little bit more. I know there's a bunch around fantasy football. There's a bunch around ESPN has a couple that come out um, each and every week. I will say one of the best ones I've listened to recently, and I'm not normally a huge fan of her, but I've I've really appreciated Oprah's Super Soul Conversations um, because she's had some really interesting guests on there. So I'll be sure to post some different ones so you can kind of um, get your fill for podcasts if you haven't. But I'm excited. So we're going to get started with our own podcast this week. Um, I am using a platform that I'm on right now called Anchor, to which I'll show everyone in class. It is very easy to use. I am actually recording through Anchor right now, but you can also upload files from your phone any MP3 file. You can also upload files from QuickTime, GarageBand, any of those other um, places that you record your information on. So I'm going to stop this one. You can see I've already talked for over 10 minutes, so it's easy to get sort of um, dragged away when you're going on. And my next set of podcasts, um, we're going to focus a little bit more on some of our readings for this week.